Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, it's 321GO with Cosmo Macero. Then we have an interview with Dave Gauthier, President of Mass Access and the Executive Director of Winchester Community Access and Media. And of course, Two Minutes with Tom. All right, we're back for another edition of 321GO on OA On Air, joined here by Kayan Isaacson. Hello. Official voice of OA On Air. Hi, Kayan. Hi, Cosmo. How are you? Very well, very well. Um, hey, let's start off with America's tech CEOs, at least four of the most prominent ones, back on Capitol Hill, or at least virtually uh, today, really taking it from both sides, Democrats on um, last time it was mostly about privacy. This time on the Democrat side, a lot about anti-competitive behavior and, and, and forcing others out of the market. Then Republicans certainly bias and censorship. And how you know, and how come you only censor Republicans and conservatives and, uh, and and progressives and the far left can say and do whatever they want? So. Some of the most successful companies under fire today from both sides, which I find interesting in a lot of ways, uh, considering all these companies represented today have become such important parts of not just the American economy, but everyone's everyday life. Your thoughts? Yeah, actually, what's really interesting is, so they're all uh, testifying on a quote-unquote panel. remotely. But this is Jeff Bezos of Amazon. This is his first time testifying before Congress, which I thought was shocking um, just due to the sheer size and value of his company, that this is the first time he has testified before uh, Congress on Capitol Hill. Um, He was largely ignored for the first, I think, hour and a half to two hours. And then they kind of, when they got to him, laid into him a bit. it's these are good conversations that we need to be having. I, I particularly think that as people are at home right now and becoming so much more reliant on the internet and many of these platforms and the technology and the software to keep them connected, it's important. We certainly don't want to disrupt any of it, but that we're aware of how it's all interacting. Um you know, the issue of Facebook buying Instagram came up. Uh, that happened a few years ago. There were some internal emails basically from with Zuckerberg saying that he wanted to buy Instagram because he didn't want to compete with Instagram. Um, and that was approved by the FTC, as he pointed out. But apparently they are looking at that again. And there's a possibility that that could change. Um, you know, it, it's All of these things are very intertwined for people who aren't paying attention might not realize the data sharing that happens, the lack of privacy, the lack of filtering on some things. I don't think anybody is satisfied with how Facebook has handled um, political ads and, and management of quote unquote news. So there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I think it's going to be a very interesting week. Yeah, I'm going to do the rare thing and take uh, and go a little bit on the other side with you on this, just because number one, I, I don't necessarily believe it's about time we dragged Jeff Bezos before Congress. And in terms of some of these other things, look, welcome to the financial services industry for the last 20 years. Welcome to all <laughs> kinds of industries that have been consolidating and merging 
and, and all of those uh, huge uh, acquisitions and mergers over the years. So yeah, companies buy other companies. That that's that's part yeah. of life. Absolutely. I think, and, 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 and you know, privacy when it comes to tech companies and internet-based services are it's always going to be a challenge and a risk. And and I and I absolutely agree and believe that we don't know what we don't know, and and, and they probably don't want to let us know some of these things, because they may have they may not have complete control over how their platforms are used. In fact, I, I I don't think that they do. But I also don't know that it's the role of Twitter or Facebook to edit and or decide what is appropriate content based on anyone's standards but their own and 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 i guess that's where i'm trying to draw a very very fine line and that is hey look we reserve the right because it's our platform and it's our company and it's our rules and policies so we reserve the right to decide what we want to do with um content that we deem is inappropriate. And I think it's reasonable to, to, to ask whether they're being fair about that. But I don't know. Congressional hearings ultimately or often lead to a variety of proposals and or recommendations and proposed legislation. Then in this case, it all feels like trying to regulate free speech if it goes in that direction. And, and that's, that's the issue I have. Um, and in terms of anti-competitive, Welcome to the U.S. economy, um, uh, but data security, privacy, and then, you know, what are they doing to control access to their platforms that can be disruptive to the economy and, I guess, the political system? Yeah, I'm game for that conversation, just like you are. Yeah, I don't, and sorry, I, I should cry. I don't think it was about time that Jeff Bezos was dragged to, I, I, to Capitol Hill. I'm not saying that. I, yeah, I, I, no, I, 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 I just thought it was interesting that it's the first time um, yeah. because of He's who an elusive is figure in the platform that he runs. And, you know, he said 80% of people think positively of, of Amazon. I'm, I'm one of them. Um, and yeah. if you come to my house, like any other house, there's probably something being delivered on a daily basis, particularly at a time where people don't want to be going into stores as much. I think it's been a lifeline, which is, which is excellent. It's a good, that's a good service. Um, what it, you know, what it means for small businesses and things. I think that's a whole other conversation to unpack. But, um, you know, I think when it comes to, when it comes to Facebook more, the inappropriate, I think that there's an argument to be made that there is a responsibility um, to be put, whether or not they are allowing, quote unquote, completely just untrue uh, political ads to run. Mark Zuckerberg has famously said he doesn't think that it is his responsibility. Um, you know, I akin that to what if we, as a podcast, had somebody on and we interviewed them and we knew that they were completely lying about things. Would we just publish that interview? No, I don't think we would. Um, obviously, that's on a much smaller scale, but responsibility is responsibility. Day. It's a great point. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but that does get to the whole, are you a platform or a publisher debate? And, and I, I don't, you know... I might lean toward platform, but I think that's a it's a it's it's a pretty flimsy argument when uh, when when you look at particularly Facebook, 
um, you know, it, they act a lot like a publisher, don't they? They 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 have they act like a news organization aggregator. Not that they're that they're necessarily collecting news and reporting news uh, or gathering it, but, but they are that comes down news. to that. And I think that's that's probably one of the most fascinating things. It's like, hey, let, hey, hey, we're just a billboard, you know. We, that's all we are. We're just we're just here putting here putting it out there. <laughs> And, and that's a flimsy argument, even though I, I might adhere to it. I, I it's probably it's 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 probably a little bit yeah. of baloney. And then on so. the other side, you know, just to you know, is Twitter, who has taken a very different stance, um, and most recently put some limits on Donald Trump Jr.'s uh, Twitter activity because of him retweeting and sharing information that was false about COVID. So there's there's two sides. Um, you know, to your point. What's the right one probably depends on who you talk to. Uh, but there is no denying that social media, I think Facebook in particular, in a lot of ways, um, probably more so than Twitter, but that's a generalization. So no one come at me, um, has been responsible for allowing inaccurate information to be very easily put out to the world and shared by people. And, you know, unfortunately, not everybody can see the difference between a reputable news outlet, a reputable um, political ad that's factual versus ones that aren't. And that gets us into a tough situation, particularly with election right around the corner. Indeed it does. Damn it, I have to have the last word. One thing I love about Twitter, they have successfully deployed the timeout to anyone, any adult, including the president and his son, Donald Trump Jr., They'll give you a timeout. 12 hours, you can't, you can't talk. It's beautiful, right? The timeout. <laughs> like putting a five-year-old in the corner. I think you know something about that. All right. <laughs> All right, up next... This week, the death of Regis Philbin, uh, a pop culture icon. You know, Kyan, the first rule of show business is what? It's to it's to have a show. First rule of show business, have a show. Right? You got to have a show. <laughs> this guy had one or the other, uh, a number of them, uh, some of the most uh, memorable sort of uh, combination of daytime game show type TV for 60 years, an incredible career, many of it spent uh, on morning television with Kathy Lee and Regis and Kathy Lee, and that show evolved and has been in multiple incarnations since then. And of course, who wants to be a millionaire? I don't know if you're familiar with one of the most iconic moments in game show history where the guy calls his father and says, Dad, I'm phoning your friend, but I don't need any help. I just wanted to let you know I'm about to win a million dollars. Oh, no, I didn't see that. That's cute. I'm going to post that with the link to the podcast. It's pretty awesome. Um, anyway, bottom line, Regis Philbin has passed. Uh, looks like he had heart uh, as a result of heart disease. Um, just uh, just someone that I think just about everyone liked. You know, one of those TV figures that you just, how do you not like the guy? He was, absolutely. But he was also multi-generational. And that's what I think is really interesting. Whether you are, you know, probably 20 or 70, you know who Regis Philbin is. You have memories of him. You remember him being on television in one way or the other. 
And there's just not a lot of people that can say that anymore. Longevity like that in the entertainment industry um, is just not that commonplace. So he stands out in that regard. And second to that is that he was uh, from seemed so likable. Um, A lot of people started their day with Regis and Kathy Lee. I remember when I was younger, I thought they were married and their name, it was Regis and Kathy and their last name was Lee. Um, I later found out out that that wasn't the case. Um, And then when Kelly Ripa came in, him and Kelly Ripa were really great together. They had a very different energy and a different relationship, but kept that show going. He then retired. She kept it. It still stands today. She's had a couple of other co-hosts since that time. Um, But again, he just, he stood the test of time. And my guess is that that had a lot to do with his demeanor and the fact that he was incredibly congenial and people liked him, I think, both in person um, as well as through the television. Absolutely true. Also, just funny as bleep, too. The guy had a really dry yet also sharp sense of humor and and was, 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 uh, was really played off well with Kathy Lee, played terrifically with, in a different way with, um, um, with Kelly Ripa and uh, just, just had an amazing career. One of those, one of, you know, a celebrity or more or three pass, pass away every week. Uh, sometimes you pause and just everybody is talking about it. And, 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 and Regis Philbin, I think is definitely one of them. Yep. I think uh, the word you were, he was witty. <clears throat> he was witty. He was witty. Uh, <laughs> get a chance to look at through his career we'd be here all day i mean going back to the uh to the to the very early 60s he had quite a remarkable career okay and finally president trump resuming uh, more regular or periodic press uh, availabilities and press conferences. He did one. He did one today at availability outside the White House that I thought was, he was trying. He stayed out there forever. The chopper was going. You could barely hear people. In fact, he kept saying to the same reporter, I can hear everybody except you. What are you saying? But he was out there for a long time. But of course, yesterday, he, he stormed out. He just, he just left. He took his ball and went home. Mm-hmm. He didn't like the questions. Imagine, can you imagine? You just don't like the questions. You're just like, okay, I'm done here. I'm not going to talk. He says that. He sometimes says, that's a, that's a, what a terrible, awful question. What a terrible thing to say. And there, sometimes you know, maybe one out of 20 is a, is a bad question, but he gets pressured on legitimate issues. He tries to brush it off or give a very vague answer or kind of spin his way out and if reporters keep hammering him, which is what they should be doing, um, yeah. he he will either abruptly switch to somebody else. And sometimes we have seen within the White House press corps uh, reporters standing up for each other, I would argue not as often as I think they should, and kind of say, no, please answer my colleague's question. Um, other times, as in yesterday, he just walked out. He ended the press conference. He didn't He didn't like the line of questioning anymore. He felt he was getting unfairly pressured, and he just left. Um, and we should – he just started doing these briefings again within the last week. Uh, I think it's clear as to why he suspended them for quite some time. 
Um, and then he spends, to your point, the next day kind of trying to make up for it. He tries to look friendly and like he's willing to answer anything to clean up the prior day's mess. It's a bit of a vicious cycle. Uh, we've seen it multiple times before. <laughs> um, but pressism, the freedom of speech and, and the freedom of the press is essential to our country, our constitution and our democracy. Um, and that means getting questions that are unfair, maybe sometimes, or that make you uncomfortable. Um, but you should answer them. I would argue. Doesn't seem that complicated. Well, you, you, should re- you should respond to them. And look, you know, we're PR people, so you should respond to them in some way that's appropriate and uh, consistent with a presidential uh, de- demeanor and behavior. And that's yeah. definitely not what he does. You know. Um, I don't think any reporter expects to get every detailed answer they want from every question or even for half, from half of them. But you're right. You should respond uh, at least in an appropriate fashion, or at least that's what we're accustomed to. I got to tell you, though, this might – look, he, he needs to do more than just hang on to his base at this stage, I believe, to be reelected. Uh, he certainly does. But I think his base, they love this. They love the way he acts with the press. So – in some ways, it's a show, right? It, it, it may not be. It's, it's, in some ways, he's putting on a show for the people who are fiercely devoted, and that's not a that's not a small amount of people. I don't think yeah. it's enough on its own for re-election. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I I would agree, um, but it does worry me. And this is I'm certainly not the first person to raise this, but what it means for what it means to be president and behavior and what's expected. going forward and forever um if we don't see a switch i I think the effect it has on really democracy particularly as freedom of the press comes in he has banned reporters who he didn't like their questions um it's 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 a dangerous quicksand um to start just sort of ignoring that element of the job that's my opinion I think you're right. The, the the bar has been lowered. So I think that the standards are, are at a low point for presidential conduct that they've ever been. And, and they've been permanently lowered. I don't think that they're going to be at this point. I don't think they're going to snap back into, uh, you know, a, 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 the, the way snap back into a, uh, a manner of decorum that uh, people are more familiar with necessarily. Um, I, I think some of the things that he's been allowed to get away with um, just by being stubborn and doing it over and over again. Uh, future presidents, not necessarily the next one, but future presidents might be uh, apt to say, yeah, you know what? I, I don't like that reporter. Get, get him out of here. Get him out of here. Or, 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 or whatever. But um, that's it. All right, Cayenne. Um, thanks a lot. Terrific conversation again on 321GO here on OA on Air. Have a, uh, have a great afternoon. You too. Hi, I'm joined today by Dave Gauthier, the president of Mass Access and the executive director of Winchester Community Access and Media. Dave, welcome. I'm so happy to be here, Cayenne. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's always good to talk to you. And you um, as well. 
first things first, tell me a little bit about Mass Access and what it is you you guys do, and then we'll dig down one layer deeper and talk about community media. Sure. Uh, well, Mass Access, and it's it's kind of weird because I get asked this all the time, so I always fall back on the old description that I say it's an advocacy agency, okay? So there are about 200 or so community media stations or public access television stations across Massachusetts. And any of those stations can be a member of Mass Access. We are a volunteer nonprofit organization. And what we do is basically advocate for the rights of community media in Massachusetts and provide educational opportunities and communication opportunities for all these different uh, stations across Massachusetts. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Okay. And for those who may not know, explain the role and the function of community centers, also known as peg stations, um, in the various cities and towns throughout Massachusetts and the country. Although we should note, Massachusetts has the highest concentration of community media centers in the country. That's correct. So, right? That is correct. And which is really which I think is pretty cool. I think so too. And one of the reasons for that is because Massachusetts enjoys local franchising uh, when it comes to cable licensing. So companies like Comcast or Verizon or Charter, uh, they have to come in and speak to each and every municipality individually in order to negotiate the contracts that they have with each one of them. And that's not true uh, with most, most other states. I think there are probably only about four or five states in the whole union who have this local franchising. Most of them are regional or statewide franchising, but because Massachusetts has this local franchising, there are many, many different stations across the state. Several of them are regional. Many of them like here in Winchester, serve only one municipality. And that's really the reason why uh, we are able to have so many different organizations across the state. And typically, it's different from municipality to municipality. So what happens here in Winchester may not be the same in Watertown or Stoneham or Somerville or anywhere else, because each and every one of them typically will have their own sets of bylaws and their own policies and procedures. Most, uh, I would say about 85% of the, of the stations here in Massachusetts are nonprofit organizations. There are a few who are uh, town or city departments as well. So it's very different, but mostly what we're in charge of doing is covering a lot of municipal meetings for the municipality that we serve. So it's a select board or a city council. Uh, and we're providing also educational opportunities and access to digital high quality recording equipment. So it's really a free speech platform for residents of Massachusetts. They can go to their local media center, become a member, take classes, and then produce content that they can share in their own communities. And Mass Access has platforms where we can take that and share it across the state, which is kind of cool as well. So we are trying to reach out and share that content all across different municipalities and trying to share all this local content and get it a wider, wider audience. And that's all really in addition to 
you know, I think when people think about their local cable access um, station, which is how a lot of people might refer to it, it's the high school football game, it's um, graduation. Um, I know growing up in my town, our high school, we produced a show every month uh, that ran on our local cable uh, station. So it really is a place for community to come together um, and in all different ways, but also as a learning and educational function as well. Yeah, I would completely agree with that, Cayenne. And it's, you know, it's odd because I think a lot of people thought with the advent of uh, the internet and YouTube and all of these things that that folks can can now have at their fingertips, you know, walking around with video cameras in their pockets where at the beginning of community media, that wasn't really the case. So there is this misconception that there isn't a place for a community media station in a modern America. And I completely disagree with that because I think, in fact, the opposite, the, the local coverage uh, of local news and, and local coverage of happenings that are going on in every small town and, and city and town is disappearing. You see a lot of print media that's drying up and creating media deserts across Massachusetts and the rest of the country. Well, community media can step into that void and really fill that. And what we can do is uh, be able to bring people all of this valuable information that, so that they can stay connected to their town governments, to their to all the happenings that's that's going on across the, their their own little piece of the state. And that actually brings me very nicely into my next question. Uh, so thank you. In recent months, since uh, really since the beginning of the pandemic, so dating back to March, uh, the community media centers and stations throughout Massachusetts have really stepped up in a lot of innovative ways to serve their communities. And depending on where you are, that might look very different. Um, but it's almost in a time where, to your point, you know, we have the internet and Facebook and social media and, email, you know, all of these things, but without the community media centers, some of the happenings and events in communities almost wouldn't have happened at all. I, I would completely agree with that statement. Uh, what we're able to do, you can't get from sending an email to YouTube or Facebook or any of these huge billion dollar corporations, but you can reach out to your local media center and work on a plan for remote meetings or remote church services or educational opportunities that will reach local children. All of these things, and I was trying to coach a lot of folks in community media at the beginning of the pandemic, being so worried as we all were about what was going to happen. I was sort of trying to spin it a different way and saying, you know, as terrible as this is, this is an opportunity for community media stations to really prove their worth to the cities and towns that they are representing. And I was really proud to be part of, of that solution because I think a lot of people, as you said, really stepped up. And a lot of these things just don't happen. You know, town meetings don't get done without the local media station. All of these, uh, to be able to, to meet an open meeting law for municipal meetings, those, that doesn't happen without community media stations. None of this stuff is really happening. And everything really grinds to a halt if the government isn't functioning on a local level. And I really think that, you know, 
all of the the pastimes, like I said, the church services, the educational things, and all of the uh, the entertainment platforms that we were able to to provide, those are the things that kept people going during some of these tough times. And that's really in addition to you know parade, like, you know, parades and and makeshift graduations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I heard about one station that turned their weekly sports program into essentially a highlight reel of seniors and uh, everything that they had accomplished in, in sports and um, things that, to your point, that were absolutely necessary, but also that just simply made people feel good at a time where connectivity was, was hard to find. Uh, it was certainly a way that was keeping people connected. Yeah, absolutely. And there were a lot of kids uh, who missed out on special events uh, because of the pandemic, you know, seniors, but not just the seniors in high school. How about the eighth graders or the fifth graders and all of those kids who would have been moving on to a new level in the mm -hmm. next year? Well, you know, we were able to help celebrate all of those different ones. And we're also archiving all of this footage and keeping it for 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 years to come. So hopefully, you know, the future generations can learn from the mistakes that, that we've made during this time. So you mentioned something that I, I want you to touch on too, is that this is a time for community media centers really to demonstrate their value and their worth. Why is that important? And with that in mind, what do you think is important for people to know about these centers now and going forward? Um, and what the future of these centers looks like. Sure. I think whenever you talk about community media and the services that we are able to offer the municipalities in Massachusetts, you have to talk about funding. Because obviously, if we don't have money to pay for our electric bills and our salaries and our rents, uh, we don't exist and we can't offer those types of things. Uh, it's important to understand that all of the laws that, that fund local cable, and to, to put it very simply, uh, cable subscribers are paying for community media stations. I think about 90 to 95% of most of our income, and I can speak just from Winchester here, and I know it's over 95% of the income that we use for operation comes from cable money, right? And this is all federal law that's written under the term cable. So as cable sort, sort of disappears as the go-to technology and people start cutting the cord and moving on to other streaming services, every year community media centers start to see decrease in funding. So what we're trying to do is become proactive about our future funding and how are we going to exist in a world where cable doesn't exist because at some point even the cable companies now are trying to rebrand themselves you know you can hear it in their advertising we're not cable so they're trying to get yeah, away almost from... as if cable has become a bad word right right because it's, <laughs> it's old technology right mm -hmm. so but unfortunately you know Everyone's we need that <laughs> yeah <laughs> Everyone's streaming, you know, and even community media centers are streaming, right? We understand that, you know, if in order for us to reach a broad audience, we have to send our content out on cable channels, but we're also sending it out on online platforms as well, because we don't want to cut out that huge portion of our audience, but cable is what pays the bills. 
So we have to be smart about how are we going to get funding to continue our operations into the future. And it's tricky. So for anyone listening right now that either says, oh my gosh, I love my, my community media center and I don't want to see it go away or has says, wow, I didn't realize they did all of this, but it sounds important. Um, it needs to keep going. What can people do? Well, I think uh, folks can urge uh, their local legislators to support uh, bills that are helpful toward community media. We had a lot of uh, traction on a bill that we introduced in the last session. Unfortunately, it was sent to study by a joint committee, but basically that bill would allow for a very similar model to what's happening with the cable currently to be assessed onto a streaming company. So say your Hulu or your Netflix, they would have to pay up to 5% of their gross annual revenue back to the municipalities for use of public rights of way, meaning telephone poles and conduits and those kinds of things, just the way cable cable does. Right, That's, that's what they pay now. They pay back to the local municipalities for use of their public rights of way and their utilities. That's federal law. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, uh, we uh, we got a little bump in the road here. And what we're doing now is we're trying to gear up for our next session to reintroduce the bill and hopefully make a little bit more traction the next time around so that, you know, as streaming video becomes more of the norm than cable, we won't be losing uh, all of our funding and we can eventually level off to keep that, maintain that same level of service that we're trying to provide to the cities and towns of Massachusetts. This isn't a money grab. You know, it's not something where any of us are getting rich on. We're just <laughs> looking to survive. Yeah. And can, and you know, and again, it's, it's, it's essential services um, with public education and government. That's what PEG stands for. Am I right? You are absolutely right. Love it when I'm right. well thank you so much for joining me this week and um i hope you'll come back and talk to us again soon i will come back anytime cayenne all right we're gonna hold you to that all right thanks so much thanks hi cayenne Hello, Tom. How are you? Thank you. I'm fine. Two more minutes. Um, Two more. Yep. Maybe 10 more. We'll see. And about five more with Cayenne. (laughs) Uh, So the the topic of the day this week, um, President Trump tweeted, and I quote, with universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent in all caps election in history it will be a great embarrassment to the usa delay the election until people can properly securely and safely vote triple question mark um you know we've uh, it's been talked about for a while uh, honestly i think since the beginning of his term but more so now um what is going to happen on election day and what is going to happen if he refuses to accept the results. And it certainly seems that for the last couple months, and it's been ramping up in the last few weeks, and then now with this tweet, that 
he's trying to really lay the ground to be able to dismiss election results come November. Um, so it's, it's scary it's, stuff. But it's scary in that it's um, it, it's you know this it's this man who was elected president yet again floating a trial balloon to find out what the you know what the feeling of the of the Congress is and the American people. I'm sure his I'm sure his his um, his base of support you know is thinking that way. So he's really kind of feeding you know he's feeding the masses that way. Um, constitutionally, he doesn't have the power to delay anything. It resides with Congress, and thank God we had a, a bipartisan effort of leadership, both Democrat as well as Republican leaders in Congress saying that this is this, this election is going to be held the first Monday in, in November, and um, and it will stay that way. We've never altered you know, the course of an election in the history of the United States, and it's not going to start now. So they were pretty emphatic. Um, and again, it was a trial balloon, and I think that was the answer to it. Just as, you know, he's just firing away on all cylinders, uh, whether he's at a, a virtual rally or whether he's at a real rally or whether he's at the microphone talking about COVID-19, he always reverts back to some idiotic, uh, you know, conspiracy thing that this election is going to be fixed by Democrats. And it's crazy. Um, just as, you know, the epidemic might have started in, in, in China, but it wasn't purposely sent here to destroy America. That I can mm -hmm. hear, as it is suggested. Also, you know, the conspiracy theory that Obama and Biden have done something tragically wrong. These are the narratives that you're going to hear during the course of the election time, that they belong in jail because of what they did in, you know, some far off country. Or, you know, these are the, these are the crazy, idiotic, conspiracy things that are mumbled every day or tweeted every day by this president of the United States. Um, why he's not talking about the virus in a, in a more laid out, better laid out, planned, strategic, thoughtful manner is beyond me. Um, and so we have this very unequal, very uneven approach to solving a pandemic nationally in 50 states having the governors provide their, their types of brands of, of leadership. It's working here in Massachusetts and in the Northeast. It's not working so well in the South and the Midwest. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I, have, I have a brand new book I want to suggest people read. Ooh, I like your book suggestions. Um, it, the, book, the title of the book is Make Russia Great Again. Make Russia Great Again. And just as the title suggests, you know, it's, it's a spoof and a mockery. It's written by Chris Buckley. Christopher Buckley wrote, uh, Thank You for Smoking, Little Green Men. That's No Way to Treat the First Lady. Um, he is a fabulous writer. Uh, he's a very funny, funny, talented man. He's also William F. Buckley's son. And he's been writing for the last 15 or 20 years. And and. I'm a fan. And so Make Russia Great Again is something everybody has to pick up and read. It's a quick read, it's a summer read, and it's a fun, fun read. Well, I'm on vacation next week, so maybe I'll pick it up for the for my vacation. That's great. Make Russia Great Again. Christopher Buckley. It's wonderful. <laughs> Shelly's smiling. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. 
great to talk to you. I'm glad we talked about this and it's, uh, it's timely, it's topical, it's absurd. This new tweet by the president of the United States. Thank heavens there's only six months left to his term. Not okay. even, right? Oh yeah, no, technically six months. We yeah. will have a brighter day, I, I guarantee you. Thanks, Tom. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.